Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Ms. Celia Barlow. Number one, Mr Deputy Speaker. Mr Deputy Speaker, sir, this morning I meet his ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in the House, I will have further such meetings later today. Celia Barlow. May I seek to cheer my right honourable friend with good news? With good news from the South Coast, where Operation Reduction, a combination of police enforcement and drugs treatment, has led to a 48% reduction in burglary, a 45% reduction in vehicle crime, and a 26% reduction in robbery in Brighton and Hove. On this historic 10th Budget Day, given the Government's record in crime prevention, may I appeal to my right honourable friend to ensure that Operation Reduction gains a further 12 months funding from April the 1st, and would he like to see our Order, 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 order. When I'm on my feet, the honourable lady must sit down. She's had a very good innings there. Prime Minister. Well, I can assure my... Uh... Honourable friend, that this uh, programme in her constituency that has seen such huge reductions in acquisitive crime will also mean across the country, um, over the next few months, we will have somewhere in the region of almost double the number of people in drug treatment. And that is a very, very important part of cutting overall crime. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can the Prime Minister tell us is this the Chancellor's last budget? What I can tell the right honourable gentleman is that I think he will be sitting on that side of the House for a long time to come. David Cameron. Oh, come on, don't be so coy. <laughs> let me try. Let me, let me put the question in a way that I suspect about 350 Labour MPs would like it put. When's he off? <laughs> I regret to have to tell the right honourable gentleman. I regret to have to tell the right honourable gentleman that we shall be here. I shall be here to, for the time that is necessary to carry through the programme upon which we were elected. Since I might just remind him, there was a general election less than a year ago, and for the third time we won it. agrees with me that where local schools have problems, they should be given the opportunity to turn themselves around. Would he join me in condemning Leicestershire County Council who are making a decision this afternoon to close Rosebury Primary School without the opportunity for that school to be given a chance to improve itself over the next year? It's taken a matter of weeks for them to come to a conclusion that they want to close the school despite the massive support from parents, governors, teachers and the local community to keep it open. Will he join me in condemning them? Well, I think, as my honourable friend will realise, part of the purpose of the edu education legislation we're putting through at the moment is precisely so that local authorities do take greater account of the wishes and needs and desires of parents. And I know Rosebury School and his constituency has a very high reputation, and I hope his representations are successful. Samingas Campbell. After the events of the last week, does the Prime Minister still believe that members of the House of Lords should be appointed and not elected? Um, there will be a, a debate, obviously, on this in the months to come, because there will be the opportunity to debate the House of Lords and its composition. 
Um, in my judgment, it is important that whatever happens out of that debate, and as I've said before, I will listen to it carefully, we do not do anything that challenges the primacy of this House. Campbell, the debate would be much better informed if the Prime Minister would tell us what his own personal view is on this subject. But may I ask the Prime Minister this? Can it be right that the Labour Party is financially indebted to a member of the Minister of the Crown? Is this not a potential conflict of interest? I think, if I can respectfully say so to the Right Honourable Gentleman, he's had his own problems in relation to party funding in the Liberal Democrats too, as indeed probably we all do. And that is why I think it is sensible that we allow Hayden Phillips to conduct the negotiation over how the system is changed for the future. Dr Nick Palmer. Prime Minister agreed that we were elected on a clear commitment to introduce ID cards yes. and the attempt by some members yes. of the unelected House to allow criminals and others to opt out of carrying the card is not just anti-democratic but ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is particularly absurd since the purpose of the amendment is actually to decouple the passport from the identity card. It is vital and indeed necessary um, it's a requirement that we introduce the new passport with the biometric um, details. It is therefore absolutely absurd to try to detach that from the introduction of an identity card, which can give so many benefits in terms of preventing identity fraud. And what is particularly absurd is when the argument that is now being put by the party opposite on identity cards is cost. The whole point about linking the passport to the identity card is that 70% of the cost is actually in the passport. So it makes perfect sense to link the two together. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. The murder of Marianne Lenehan has truly shocked the whole country. Four of the six gang members convicted were on probation when this dreadful murder took place. What steps is the Prime Minister going to take to ensure that the probation service properly assesses the risk that people under their charge pose to the public? Well, first of all, I think, in respect to this particular case, which was indeed absolutely shocking and appalling, I think anybody who has read even the most cursory details of it could not fail to be absolutely sickened um, by the details of a horrific crime. In fairness to the probation service, however, it is important to state that these people were not on early release, nor were they subject to penalties that involved imprisonment at any stage. Um, the crimes for which they were on prob probation were far, far reduced. However, there is a broader issue that is raised not just by this case, but by many of the other recent cases, and that is the issue to do with how we monitor offenders all the way through, through their trial and then conviction, and then subsequently if they go to prison when they are released from prison. That is the purpose of the reforms to the National Offender Management Service being introduced by my right honourable friend. David Cameron. But isn't it the case that the reorganisation of the probation service, the part creation of the National Offender Management Scheme, and the shortage in staff has combined to create a demoralised service? Isn't that part of the problem? Look, it, first of all, we, we are actually and have increased funding significantly over the years. But secondly, no, I don't believe that is the problem, I'm afraid. I think the problem is to do with how we track particularly those that may be highly dangerous offenders and instead of treating the offence, treat the offender. In other words, make sure, and this is the whole purpose of the reforms we're introducing, that if someone has a record, for example, of violent or sexual crime, that they are tracked and monitored even when they finish their sentence. And the purpose of the changes to the National Offender Management Service is precisely to do that. I really do not think it is an issue to do with the funding of the probation service. David Cameron. 
while early release may not have been an issue in this case, will he ensure that the Home Secretary, who has commissioned a review of probation policy, will the Prime Minister ensure that it includes the early release schemes, which cause widespread concern and do still let far too many prisoners out of prison far too early? My understanding is certainly that the early release scheme actually had cross-party support uh, when it was introduced, and of course release on parole has been going on for many, many years. What is important, however, is I, I, I don't agree with them, incidentally, that I think this is a problem to do either with the morale in the probation service or the level of funding. It is to do, I'm about to explain, it is to do with the procedures that we apply to offenders, and in my view we have to apply those procedures even when someone has finished their sentence. The problem at the present time is that someone may be convicted of a violent sexual offence, for example, serve a term of imprisonment, be released from imprisonment once they've served their sentence. It is at that point that we need new procedures, new rules that mean they are subject to monitoring and supervision and, if necessary, recall even after they have finished their sentence. Now, I think that is at the heart of this issue. And the changes that my right honourable friend is making, the National Offender Management Service, will be extremely important in making sure that prison and probation work far more closely together. And I think there are real issues to do with the way the probation service is organised rather than the way that it is funded that need to be addressed. Mr Jim McGovern. Deputy Speaker. Two weeks ago, I attended an event in my local Tesco superstore to promote their involvement in Fair Trade Fortnight. Two days later, they announced they were sharing over 400 jobs in my constituency with no prior consultation with either local politicians or trade unions. I have since received correspondence from Tesco which indicates that they knew of their decision for over a year. Would the Prime Minister join me in reminding Tesco that Fair Trade should not only mean a fair price for the people that supply the tea, coffee and chocolate which they sell, but also a fair deal for the communities in which they locate and the, the people that they employ. Well, I'm sure uh, that my honourable friend is right in saying that I hope that any company faced in a situation where they have to make redundancies obeys the proper procedures. And, of course, the Information and Consultation Directive from Europe uh, should assist that process. I obviously don't know enough about the circumstances of the individual case that he raises, but I'm happy to look into it for him. Mr Ben Wallace. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. In light of the recent financial scandals, which is the Prime Minister looking forward to most? Helping the Italian police with their inquiries or the Metropolitan Police? Uh, I think if I may respectfully point out to the Honourable Gentleman, this side has been a little more open on the issue of loans than his side. However, having said that, I think the sensible thing is, since we have appointed Hayden Phillips to look at this whole area, that we try and reach consensus on the right way forward, since party political funding is difficult for any political leader. Adrian Bailey. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. Can I uh, draw the attention of my right honourable friend to the announcement by the Low Pay Commission that the national minimum wage will be increased from £5.05 per hour to £5.35 per hour as from October. Given the fact that this was once described as, quote, extreme, dangerous and absurd by the previous leader of the Conservative Party, what assessment has my right honourable friend made of this impact on poverty? Well, the latest increase in the minimum wage will benefit around about 1.3 million people, 66% of those, two-thirds of those are women. And as a result of a combination of the minimum wage and tax credits, 
We have not merely lifted many, many families out of poverty. We've made work pay, and the minimum wage is an issue that we had to fight very, very strongly. And the, right, the Honourable Gentleman shouts out about unemployment. Might I remind him we have two million extra jobs under this government. So the very... No, I know, I know you represent the Neanderthal tendency of the party opposite, and I, and I admire that in one sense because it's so genuine. But it, it's, it is the case that it used to be said that if we introduced a minimum wage, unemployment would go up. Actually, what has happened is we've introduced a minimum wage and employment has gone up. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen Crabbe. Yeah. Could the Prime Minister please tell us which of his policies does he think is responsible for the defection to Labour of Mr Alan Bastard? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I don't know... If I'm not in a position to comment on Mr Bastard, but what I can say to him is that I, th I believe that the reason why we have managed for the first time in our history to win three general elections and why his party has spent a longer time sitting there in opposition consecutively than it's ever spent is because we've combined a strong economy, investment in public services and social justice. Would the Prime Minister agree with me? that the prospects for a cross-party consensus uh, on tackling um, the, the long-term environmental challenge will prove elusive while the main party opposite continues to oppose the climate change levy. Well, I agree entirely with my honourable friend. And it's worth just pointing out that I think the climate change levy now accounts for around about 40% of the reduction in emissions that this country will achieve by the year 2010. And therefore, the climate change levy is a complete test the support of it of whether someone is serious about the environment or not. And whether a party is serious is not to be determined by people cycling or not to the House of Commons, but is to be determined by whether they're prepared to take the tough, difficult, long-term decisions to reduce CO2 emissions. John Deputy Prime Minister said in evidence the Select Committee, we're making more and more decisions on a regional basis. It's done with regional offices of present, the previous administration set up. I believe it should be on elected representation. We're inclined to agree with him. Does the Prime Minister? And what's he doing to end the colonial government of the English regions and make his honourable friend happier? As you may remember, we did have a referendum in the North East. Um, and I think there are different ways that we can devolve power. One of the ways we are doing it is devolving power, for example, to schools in local communities. Local area agreements for local authorities are immensely important. And, of course, the regional development agencies have been a major factor in regional regeneration. So there are, there are many models of regional devolution. When the Prime Minister was elected, he promised to rule and be whiter than white. At what point did he change course and why? I would simply point out to the Honourable Lady that we have introduced in the Electoral Commission laws and indeed in the party funding laws transparency for the first time. Now, yes, it is true we will have to go further. But I might remind her, prior to 1997, no one knew who funded any political party, in particular the Conservative Party. Angus McPhail. Can the Prime Minister explain to this House that even before the loan scandal, before the Metropolitan Police investigation, 80 pence in every pound of individual donations to the Labour Party came from people who were subsequently ennobled by him? 
Yeah. I'm proud, actually, that the Labour Party has the support of successful business people and entrepreneurs. I'm quite sure that is not the case with the Scottish National Party, for the very good reason that their policies would wreck the Scottish economy. David Davis. Has the Prime Minister seen this article in today's Sun featuring 12 people who were murdered by prisoners out on early release? And will he now support the campaign to stop all forms of early release and make Britain a safer place in which to live? I do point out to the Honourable Gentleman that the early release scheme, when it was introduced, actually had the support of both sides of the House, that parole schemes have been in existence for many, many years. We do indeed look at how we can tighten those schemes up, but I think that it would be a mistake to change the whole of that scheme that, as I say, when it was introduced, actually had support across the House. John Robertson. Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker. My right and honourable friend, uh, join with me in congratulating the sportsmen and women who are doing so well over in Melbourne. Will they also join with me in helping to support the Glasgow bid for the Commonwealth Games for 2014 and help us as much as they helped London in winning 2012? Well, first of all, I I would certainly join my honourable friend in congratulating all our athletes on the successes at the Commonwealth Games, and let's hope it continues throughout the remainder of the Games. And I can tell them that I support fully the Glasgow bid. I think it's an important bid. And as Manchester found uh, when it hosted the Commonwealth Games, the last Commonwealth Games, the Commonwealth Games brings fantastic opportunities for the city. It's been an amazing thing for Manchester. It's very much helped with the renaissance of Manchester. I know Glasgow is doing well in any event, but the Commonwealth Games there in 2014 would be a great event. Um, what, What possible justification can there be for making nurses and other medical staff redundant in the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford and the Horton Hospital in Banbury? First of all, I think it's important, surely, to put that in context of the overall numbers of nurses in the Thames Valley Strategic Health Authority. There have been almost 3,000 more nurses and almost 400 more consultants. Now, it is correct the John Radcliffe Hospital has severe financial difficulties. That is why we are looking with them at how they can get over those. But let the Honourable Gentleman be in no no doubt at all. The increase in real terms of the funding is almost 7%. That's in real terms. And there has to be a finite amount of money available. And therefore what is happening with the new financial system in the National Health Service is that for the first time there is a proper account being kept and hospitals do have to live within their means and it is important that they do so. Now in some cases that will mean difficult and hard decisions. But as one of the uh, chief executives and one of the trusts was explaining the other day, those are necessary for the long-term health of the National Health Service. Mr. Deputy Speaker, the whole House will join with me in celebrating the fact that this is the 60th anniversary this week of the first bill that introduced the National Health Service by that great socialist Nye Bevan. Would the Prime Minister agree? Would the Prime Minister agree with me that if Nye Bevan were looking down now, he would applaud? He would applaud the massive, unprecedented investment in the health service by this government. And would the Prime Minister give us a progress report? Yeah. Um, It's it's no wonder that the members opposite shout, because, of course, on the 19th of March 1946, the NHS bill was presented 
to Parliament to create the NHS. And what did the party opposite do? They voted against it. Just as, of course, they have voted against the extra investment that is now renewing our National Health Service so that we have more nurses, more doctors, so that we're performing more operations, waiting times and waiting lists are falling, and, of course, we have cancer and cardiac deaths massively down. And that is the National Health Service renewed for the 21st century. Andrew George. Uh, but, the, uh, but the Minister of State in the Department of Health told me uh, last Tuesday, uh, column 398, that my local hospitals trust should, um, and I quote, be commended for their actions and supported in their, in their proposals to sack 300 staff, cancel operations, cut wards, theatres and other essential services. What my constituents who are losing jobs and services want to know, who is responsible for this? Is it the board? Is it the board who is appointed by the Secretary of State or is it the Secretary of State herself? It, it, it is surely... The reason why there is a deficit is not because there haven't been huge increases in funding. Surely even the Honourable Gentleman can understand. There's been now an increase every single year in real terms, including this year, of 6.4%, so that the West of Cornwall Primary Care Trust is now getting over £172 million. Now, that is actually delivered, falling waiting times, falling waiting lists, and indeed more staff. But it's important that his constituency hospital, like the others, lives within the means. And the reason for that is there is a massive investment going in. It is correct as a result of the new financial system being introduced. Hospitals are having to make sure, and primary care trusts, that they do indeed live within their means. And that is important because whatever government is in power, there's going to be a finite amount of resources. But when he asks what is responsible, sometimes what is responsible is the fact that they need to change the way services are delivered so that they can deliver the right number of targets that the government has set down, but do so in a way that present, prevents them going into financial deficit. That is why my honourable friend congratulated them in his area, not because anyone wants to see anyone made redundant, but because it's important to do it. Ian Lucas. When Fergal Sharkey opened a new music studio in central Wrexham recently, an orderly queue of young people formed to set it to make their bookings. Will my right honourable friend commend the Department of Culture, Media and Sport and Wrexham Borough County Youth Service for their excellent initiative in opening up the studio? And will he urge all honourable members of the House to open up space in their constituencies to have a very loud, very open rock music studio because it engages our young people. My honourable friend is absolutely right. Uh, I was trying to think back of my memory which band Fergal Sharkey was a member of. I think Undertones, I think it was. Am I right? Yeah, they right. And therefore, that initiative, I'm sure, will be an absolutely excellent one. And it's one of the things that enables young people to get fully involved in the joys of music. And it happened with Adrian Sanders. Over 8,000 people were on a waiting list for NHS dental care last year in my constituency. Thanks to the hard work of the PCT, it was down to 3,000 until this Monday when a major NHS dental practice pulled out of care and it's back up to 9,000. When is the Prime Minister going to get a grip on the NHS dental crisis in this country? 
the, the majority of the dentists are agreeing to the new contract, but it's true, some are not. And we are therefore bringing new dentists in. We are training more dentists because we've opened a new dental school. But we cannot, as I've explained before, actually force dentists who do not want to to come into the NHS contract. I'm pleased to say, however, that I think around about 90 to 95% of them are. And I'm sorry about the people in uh, the Honourable Gentleman's constituency, but we do have to, we cannot force people to be part of the NHS dental contract, but I point out that for 5% less work, it is now paying £80,000 a year. Mr Stephen Hesford. Mr David Heath. Thank you, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker. Last week I asked the Prime Minister a perfectly straightforward question about long-term care of the elderly, and he gave me a totally inadequate reply about pensions. So can I ask him again? Why do elderly people in this country continue to have to sell their homes to pay for their care in old age eight years after he said that he would leave the country if that was still the case? I'm sorry if you thought my reply was inadequate, but what I actually said to him was we put a lot more money into help for elderly people and care, but there is a limit to the amount of resources we have. Mr Hugh Bailey. Last year, despite rising oil prices, the UK had the highest economic growth rate in Europe. We used to have over 10,000 unemployed in York, now it's below 2,000. How has our Labour government managed to avoid the recessions we had when the other party was in power? Well, it's due to the strong economic management, honourable friend, and of course what we have now is the longest period of sustained economic growth this country has had. We have low interest rates, we have low inflation, we have high levels of employment, low levels of unemployment, and that of course is enabling us to make the investment in the public realm and the public infrastructure that is also delivering better schools and better health care. Sir John Butterfield. <coughs> Mr Deputy Speaker, would the Prime Minister agree with me that public confidence in the office of the Parliamentary Ombudsman is fatally undermined if when she produces a very detailed and lengthy report on the scandals in the pensions industry, it is its findings and recommendations are dismissed out of hand by the government? They're not dismissed out of hand, but I, I think I'm right in saying that even the front bench opposite have made it clear that they cannot commit to the £15 billion that accepting the, the recommendations would mean. And in the end, that is £15 million that has to come from the, the general taxpayer. And therefore, if I can say to the Honourable Gentleman, it's not that we reject um, her findings out of hand. It is that they come with a financial cost, and the financial cost is huge. And if it really is £15 billion, it's something I think he would have to accept the country could not afford. So David Kidney. Mr Deputy Speaker, now that the Treasury and the Department for Education and Skills has announced the extra money for youth services in England, will my honourable, right honourable friend encourage local politicians to reach out to young people directly to ensure that they decide how the extra money is spent on facilities for them? Well, as a result of the additional money put into skills, we now have run about 300,000 or more apprenticeships in the country. We've got very large numbers of people who are now being helped through, hundreds of thousands of them, um, to skill levels for the first time. And the result of the extra measures, and also, of course, the further education white paper that will be published shortly, will allow us to expand significantly the help we give people, not merely when they're at school, but when they leave school and urgently require reskilling. Sir George Young. Could the, um, could the Prime Minister have another shot at a question he was asked 20 minutes ago? Is he in favour of a predominantly elected House of Lords, yes or no? 
said before uh, when I've answered that question that I will wait for the debate, that I'm not going to commit myself, no, because it's important that we do so. But I say to the... Well, I think the right on gender would have to accept there are different views on electoral laws everywhere. Yes. And I am not going to express mine at this moment in time. However, there will be an opportunity for the House to vote on this at a later point in time. And the one thing I have said before, and I say again now, I will not do anything that challenges the primacy of this House. And what is important is that we avoid a situation where we end up with gridlock between the two Houses of Parliament. Meg Hillier. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. Mr Deputy Speaker, at the end of last year, five million more people were visiting government-funded museums than in 2001, when this government made admissions to those museums free. That's 66% increase on visitor numbers. Does my right honourable friend agree that this is a triumph for a policy that allows people equal access to culture regardless of their income? Uh, my honourable friend is absolutely right. Honourable members opposite may laugh, but it means, uh, as she says, an extra five million visits. There's been an increase of 66%. For example, visits to London museums rose by 65%. And what that means is that particularly young people, often for the first time, have got the chance to go to museums and other people for their, for their leisure activity, and they are therefore able to see some of the best museums in the world. And if anything indicated the strength and correctness of the policy, it is that there are two-thirds more visitors today than when we came to office. Crispin Blunt. Why did the Prime Minister not ask the Electoral Commission to investigate the party loans issue? We, we abided by the party, loan, the party loans rules completely. But let me just again say to the Honourable Gentleman, whereas we have now put out all the names of the... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Whereas we have disclosed those names, his party hasn't. 